0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, continuing on in our study through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. The uh, allurements to sin and the temptations to sin in this world are many. We have become... um, uh, a a a accustomed to or perhaps the false belief that sin always comes to us in clearly marked packages with labels that say sin or wickedness or temptation or whatever and then it's really easy to resist because it's very clear that that is right or wrong you can always distinguish the good guys from the bad guys even in modern films Because they're always dressed differently, they always talk differently, and they even laugh differently, okay? It's just so blatantly obvious who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. We live under uh, the false assumption that temptation can be seen, identified, and resisted a mile away. Oh, I, I would be so aware that temptation was coming Uh, I, I would be so resistant to it that it could never overtake me. We must remember, though, that Satan's tactics are much more subtle than that, and we have to be on guard to identify the temptations that we face. We have to actually go to war with our temptations, with our lusts. And by the way, war is a good thing in that context. You might recall that Tolkien told us, Uh, Through Faramir, that we ought not love the battle for the battle's sake. He wrote this I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I only love that which they defend. The call today is for us as Christians to enter into the battle, to enter into the fray, to get back into the ring to uh, enter the battle, to love the battle, not because we love the battle, but because we love that which we are fighting for, because we love the reward, because we love the people. Perhaps you have yielded to temptation in one of a thousand ways. Depression, anxiety, sexual lust, laziness, slothfulness, gluttony, passivity, pride, despair, idolatry, lust for power or control, distraction, boasting, lying, theft, disobedience, failure to submit as a wife, failure to lead as a husband, perverse tongue, sinful anger, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, gossip, lack of hospitality, neglecting church attendance, dot, 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 etc. If you have yielded to temptation, then I would urge you today to stand up, pick up your sword, Wipe the blood and the sweat off of your face and run back to the front lines. Engage the enemy. Press in. Encourage your fellow soldiers who are running right next to you here in this room. Help them see the value. Love, as the Bible says, the brotherhood. Lift them up, carry them, guard yourself, run to war. Love that which is pure, that which is good, that which is wholesome, that which is edifying, and that which builds up. Pursue purity and devotion and holiness and Christlikeness. We might say it this way, slay dragons and love people. I ask you to do this thing. Not because I believe you are strong enough. I certainly don't ask you to do this thing because I believe that if God puts a Goliath in your life, he believes it's because there's a David inside of you. I do not ask you to do this thing because I think you are the master of your own destiny. I ask you to do this thing because of one reason. God is faithful. That is the reason I ask you to do this thing. These three words, God is faithful, is a little statement, and it is a hinge that the passage in front of us swings on. Everything in this passage, in these first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, hinges on these three little words. Paul's going to warn us to flee temptation. And he could have said this, watch out for temptation and lift yourself up by your bootstraps. But instead, he says this, watch out for temptation and you will receive strength because God is faithful. This is the hinge. This is the center point of this entire text in front of us. Do you see that in the passage? If you glance down at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, Your endurance, your sanctification revolves not around you, but around God. And so I invite you today to join the battle. Again, pick up your sword. Join the battle against your own flesh. Join the battle against the world and join the battle against the devil because of the faithfulness of our God. Let's read the text in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I'm going to look at this text in three sections, verses one through five, a similar situation. Six through 12 is a warning and then finally a promise given in verse 13. Here's the summary of verses one through five. We are blessed, just like our Israelite forefathers were blessed. Since Paul is speaking to a mostly Gentile audience, it is significant that he refers to the Israelites as our fathers. He recognizes that even non-Jews have a spiritual heritage with the Israelites, though not a physical one. We have the same God, we might say. And you might recall last week, as we concluded chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, there was a warning, and the warning was simply discipline yourself. We ought to be those who are disciplined as Christians. We saw how that's not incompatible with grace, as some might perceive it to be, but we are to discipline ourselves. And now he comes around kind of on the other side of that, and he starts to give us some very practical examples for us to obey this command. He, he says, you know, our fathers were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses. They ate spiritual food. They had spiritual drink. And um, these references, under the cloud, through the sea, baptized into Moses, um, are, are perhaps in a sense confusing in one sense, and in another sense I think they're not. Um, what is, what is he Mean when he talks about being baptized into Moses and all these things. Well, we know that he's that he's referring to the Exodus events. Israel is coming out of Egypt, and they pass through the Red Sea. Um, There's this cloud there, um, representing the presence of God, and so on and so forth. Baptism into Moses. Really, um, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled over this one, but generally speaking, I think most are agreed that it simply means being associated with Moses or, or being under the Mosaic Covenant. Eating and drinking spiritual food and drink simply refers to the spiritual benefits given to the Israelites. Some think there's a, a comparison to the Lord's Supper in here, which may be the case. Um, but basically, and generally speaking, these references are saying Israel experienced many of the same spiritual blessings that we as the church experience. And yet, we understand that spiritual benefits should not translate into spiritual lethargy. We ought not say, look at all that we've been blessed with, therefore we can uh, you know, lay down and relax and chill out. The Israelites were certainly blessed, blessed enough to have Christ with them, as verse 4 says. They drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Again, what's up with all the analogies here? He's saying there was a spiritual rock that followed them, Israel, and that rock was Christ. There was a Jewish legend that the rock that Moses struck in the desert. Remember that? Moses struck the rock and water comes out of the rock. There was a Jewish legend that said that, the, that this rock actually followed them through the 40-year wilderness wanderings. Um, and I think the um, probably predominant view here in 1 Corinthians 10.4 is that Paul was simply picking up and, and playing on this legend. He, it's kind of like he's saying this, You know, actually, you're right. A rock did follow them. It was actually Christ. (laughs) They they did have the presence of God with them. Christ was with them. It's not a physical rock, as perhaps maybe your legends say, but there was a rock, and it was Christ. And so Paul clearly sees Christ in the Old Testament here. Uh, There was a story I read one time where someone said, you know, you see too much Christ in the Old Testament. And the man replied, you must be mistaken. You're confusing me with the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Because Paul is continually, again and again and again, saying, here's Christ, here's Christ, here's Christ. And the truth is that Paul does see Christ all over the Old Testament, and so must we. But we must see, as we have striven to clarify in the past, that we must see Christ in legitimate ways, not to force a square peg in a round hole. Here is a legitimate way of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. He was with Israel. He was with his people. The point for us here is to look at the Corinthian Christians, and of course ourselves by implication, and to look at the experience of the wandering generation of Israelites, and to say, we are blessed, not in identical ways necessarily, but in many similar ways. There's a lot in common that we have with Israel. And we quickly learn that in spite of having many things in common, God was not very pleased with this particular generation. In verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. This is kind of uh, uh, an understatement of, of sorts here. Most means every last one of them except two. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses, Moses himself was not permitted to come into the promised land because he disobeyed the word of the Lord. He, he struck the rock when God said, speak to the rock. And so Moses himself was excluded. So God was not pleased with the whole lot of them except for two of them. And because of these first five verses and the similarities that we see between Israel and between us, we're prompted to ask ourselves a simple question, and that is, how can we avoid those same pitfalls? It, wow, they, they were blessed. They did have a lot, and they still fell. Maybe that, what about us? <laughs> what about temptation for us? And that is where we're going in this text, but we're not quite there yet, and so there is uh, a warning that's given in this passage uh, to us. We're told that we are in a similar situation to Israel, Uh, And now we are given a warning to say, don't be like Israel. I count six warnings in these verses, and I'll put them up here for you. In verses 6 through 12, um, the warnings are that we might not desire evil, do not be idolaters, do not indulge in sexual immorality, not to put Christ to the test, do not grumble, and take heed lest we fall. He begins this section by saying, these things took place as examples for us. In other words, this is another way of saying that the Old Testament is relevant. The Old Testament is important. You can glean value from these passages. In other words, the 40 years of wilderness wanderings has produced a good harvest not necessarily for that generation, but the 40 years of wilderness wanderings has produced a good harvest, and it is a harvest that you, sitting here in the 21st century, have the opportunity to glean. You get to glean from that harvest. In other words, you get to learn from the lesson. You get to reap the harvest that Israel did not get to. What led to their dead bodies laying all over the wilderness leads to something good for you and I. We would disagree strongly with those who would claim that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from our Bibles. The Bible uh, in the Old Testament is full of continuing relevance for the Christian. And how is it relevant? Well, there are many ways, but in this text, there are at least six ways. First of all, do not desire evil as they did. We are not to desire evil There is a view today going around in evangelicalism, broadly speaking, in the church in America, there is a view circulating that as long as you do not act out on sinful desires, it is not sinful in itself to have a sinful desire. That view is circulating around right now. Uh, An example of this is there are some... Uh, who would claim to be Christian and would say that you can be a blank Christian as long as you don't act out on that desire. So they might say you can be a gay Christian as long as you're celibate, as an example. Um, You can have the desires, you can wrestle with the desires, and that's not sinful. It's only if you act out on that particular thing. Now, uh, this verse, the verse in our text today that we are on, is actually a key verse in refuting this particular position, that God views the act as sinful and the internal desire as sinful too. God God views the inside and the outside, okay? He cares about both of those things. There are a couple other verses that I can give to you that would also affirm that God is interested in exercising lordship and does exercise lordship over our desires and our passions. Galatians 5:24 would be a parallel text to add to this where we read those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with what? He says the flesh, but he also says its passions and desires. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 says the same thing put to death whatever is earthly in you, okay? What is in this list? What are you supposed to put to death as a Christian? Sexual immorality, okay? Impurity, passion, evil desire. The actual desires themselves, the cravings in our own hearts are included in this. It is very clear that uh, God demands, that God demands Allegiance from the whole Christian, the whole person. God is not interested in piecemealing us. He's not saying, as long as you give me this area and submit to me here, you can go do whatever else you want in this area. God is demanding allegiance over the mind, the will, the emotions, the whole person. We are in our entirety, to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. God wants the whole person so that every molecule and every atom of my body, every thought and every desire, every motivation and every passion, says in unison, Jesus Christ is Lord. God is not satisfied with anything less than that. Paul is talking about this this allegiance of you in terms of your passion and your desire. And the example that he uses is the example of the craving, the passion, the desire that Israel had. You might recall from Numbers 11, 4, this is what Paul is referring to. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong, what? craving, a strong desire, a strong passion, and the people of Israel wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We might say that Israel's evil cravings destroyed them. Now, Paul just warned us against this in chapter 9 when he said, discipline your bodies. And now we see what happens to those who have no ability to discipline themselves. They have evil and unrestrained desires that rule them. Remember we said this last week? Um, it is which, not whether, Which, which something is going to rule you, not whether something is going to rule you. You will be ruled by something. Something will be your master. It will either be Christ as Lord or it will be your own desires and cravings that will demand allegiance. And that's what we see here. Paul warned us, discipline your bodies. Now we see what happens to those who do not do this. We are to put off our evil desires. Additionally, he says we are to put off idolatry. In verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is, of course, a reference to Exodus 32 with the golden calf incident. Verse 6, they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, what does this mean, they sat down eating eat and drink and rose up to play? Um, the, Exodus 32, this phrase in 1 Corinthians 10, has long been understood, even by the early rabbis, also by the early church. It has been understood throughout church history as a reference to sexual debauchery. They rose up to play, a reference to sexual immorality. Paul warns the Corinthians against this, and we would do well to remember that we too can commit idolatry. Now we say, well, we haven't bowed down to a golden calf. Uh, I, I, I would guess that probably none of you have faced that specific temptation. We could be wrong. I don't think any of you have faced a temptation to physically bow down before A golden idol of some sort. But we must remember that idolatry is uh, broader than this, and the Journal of Biblical Counseling defines it this way Idolatry includes anything on which we set our affections and indulge in as an excessive and sinful attachment. What this means is that idolatry, we can engage in idolatry even if we are doing things that are not inherently sinful, okay? So take one of your hobbies, uh, something that you delight in doing, something that is in and of itself not sinful, and if you treat it this way, if you set your affections on it and indulge in it as an excessive attachment, then what does that mean? It means that you have engaged in idolatry here. You are loving something more than you love Christ, And so Paul warns us, by using the example of Israel, we are not to engage in idolatry, even if it is not physically bowing down to an idol. Furthermore, he informs us that we are not to put Christ to the test. This is verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Okay, this is recorded in Numbers 21. Again, it was because they were complaining about their food and water, and God sent actual snakes to bite them and to destroy them. Then Paul includes grumbling. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Okay? Children, this includes you. Do not grumble. Do not grumble against your parents. Do not grumble or be discontent. Grumbling and complaining—this is odd to us, right? I mean, okay, idolatry—we shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. You know, we don't put Christ to the test. Oh, don't grumble. I mean, that's a small sin. Come on, why is that on this list? Because it's a big sin. Grumbling and complaining is a high-handed sin against the Lord because it expresses dissatisfaction in the Lord and his will. If you grumble, you are saying God is unwise. That's what you're saying. If you say, if you grumble about the situation that you are in, you are saying you are chafing against providence. You are chafing against the sovereignty of God. And Paul reminds us of the seriousness of this sin, because what does the end of verse 10 say? God killed them for this. God did not slap them on the wrist. They actually died because they grumbled and because they complained. Paul reminds them that this behavior of the Israelites was recorded for their benefit, It is given for your instruction. It is given for your example. And furthermore, it was written to invoke humility inside of us in verse 12. Therefore, let any of you who thinks that they're standing do what? Take heed. Any of you have pride? Any of you, anyone want to say... (laughs) If I was Israel, no way would I have done that. And, and any takers? That's what Paul is saying. Take heed, lest you fall. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says the same thing. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If this is the case, then what are we to do in order to avoid falling in the same pit as Israelites? This is an example. This is a warning. Don't do what they did. Said another way, how can we overcome temptation? And the answer is given to us in verse 13, the promise. Note this verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is one of the most frequently quoted verses in the entire New Testament, and in fact, I would venture to say that probably many of us have memorized First Corinthians ten and verse thirteen. And if you have not memorized 1 Corinthians 10 in verse 13, let me exhort you to memorize 1 Corinthians 10 in verse 13. It is important to observe that this verse, and I'll say this because some of us have quoted and memorized this verse so many times that we may forget that this is given to us not in isolation, but inside of a context. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is not delivered to us in isolation. It is not delivered to us via Twitter. Rather, it is delivered to us in a paragraph. And it is given to us not only in the context of a paragraph, it is given to us in the context of a chapter. And that context is uh, in a book, and that book is in the Bible. And... We have to understand it in light of that context. The immediate context is this. Israel was overtaken in temptation. Don't you be overtaken in temptation. And by the way, here's a promise for you about that. Don't be like Israel, we might say. That is the immediate context for this verse. The broader context is that this appears in a passage of 1 Corinthians talking about what? What have we been talking about for the past several weeks? What have we been talking about beginning in chapter 8 and continuing into chapter 9? And now in chapter 10, what's that? Okay, self-control, Christian freedom, conscience issues. You remember all of these things? This is happening inside of that context. And this context, this discussion on using your freedom wisely with self-control, not indulging, you are not allowed as a Christian to say, I'm free and therefore I can do whatever I want to satisfy myself. No, we said that Christian freedom is the domain of the mature, not the immature. Remember that? And so now what we are seeing is We're getting into chapter 10, and part of this discussion about Christian freedom and self-control and discipline is, eventually gets to the point where we say, we got to deal with the issue of temptation. And you know what this culminates in? Verse 31 of chapter 10 is the culmination of this entire section on self-control. You guys know what verse 31 says, right? What does verse 31 say? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? All to the glory of God. You realize that this verse, we're going to get to this soon too, Lord willing. This is in a context. What's the context of this? He specifically talks about eating and drinking, which references the conscience issues. He's saying you... you, As far as the conscience issues go, and as far as the Christian freedom issues go, use your freedom to glorify God, not to indulge your flesh. That's what he's saying. And that kind of encapsulates this entire section. In the middle of this section, or maybe closer to the end, three quarters of the way through this section, we have verse 13 about temptation. And we are to understand verse 13 in light of what came before it and in light of what comes after it. You may know that the Westminster Catechism asks this question in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 10: What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is right from 1 Corinthians 10:31. And so we might say that in the present context, verse 13, we are reminded that the way you fight temptation must glorify God. You must fight temptation in a God-glorifying way. And specifically, in this verse, it's by acknowledging the faithfulness of God, that God is good and faithful. Well, let's, let's, let's tear this verse apart a little bit here there are at least five observations that I would like to make on verse 13. And I'm going to put them up here for you. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. There are at least five observations to make. Number one, you will never face a unique temptation. Number two, your temptations will be limited in strength not as strong as they could be. Number three, God will help you endure the temptation. Number four, God will help you escape the temptation. And number five, God is faithful. So let's take these each in turn. You will never face a unique temptation. This is the statement where he says, no temptation has overtaken you. Uh, that is not common to man. Okay, What that means is that you'll never face something that someone else hasn't faced in the past. Whatever temptation you face, someone else has gone through this. In fact, I think I could probably say with a fair amount of certainty that someone has faced this and it was stronger than it was for you. It was harder for them than it is for you considering the millions and billions of people that have lived on the planet. Oftentimes, this realization alone is incredibly helpful for a person wrestling through temptation. Have you ever heard someone, or have you ever said this to yourself before? Man, I thought I was the only one. Any, anyone ever had that experience before? You're going through temptation, and you're saying, this is, a, this is a struggle for me. And all of a sudden, someone else comes and says, man, I have been through that exact same thing. And you're like, are you kidding me? I thought I was the only one. Sometimes this just by itself is just an encouragement. Okay, I'm not the only one. I can, not by me, by God's grace, get through this. Whatever you are facing, others have gone through it before, and... By God's grace, they have overcome it. Not not 100% of people. Some people yield to temptation. But God has given grace for people to overcome this specific temptation that you're going through. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to look at these observations out of order from the text. um, Because the one in the middle here kind of encompasses all of them and we'll, we'll conclude with that one. So secondly, I want to go to this one. Your temptations will be limited in strength. Now, this might seem odd if you're in the furnace right now. (laughs) This is limited? Are you kidding me? (laughs) But it is, I would suggest, extremely encouraging because your temptation is not as strong as it could be. God limits the strength or the intensity of the temptation that you are facing you will not ever face a temptation full on, okay? It's going to be stepped down when, when it gets to you, okay? You know, it's like, what are those things that are by your electric pole down there, or whatever, takes the voltage and it steps it down before it gets to your house, okay? This is, this is what temptation is for us. Now, by the way, there was someone who did face that temptation without it being stepped down. Anyone know who that person was? That's Christ. Christ faced temptation full on and did not yield. And then when we experience temptation, he steps it down for us. John MacArthur says this, No believer can claim that he was overwhelmed by temptation or that the devil made me do it. No one, not even Satan, can make us sin. No temptation, listen to this, no temptation is inherently stronger than our spiritual resources. People sin because they willingly sin. If you sinned, it's because you sinned. That is your sin. Now, now, the limited strength of the temptation, there's kind of two observations here. What does it mean? What are the implications that the temptation is limited? Well, it means that the sin is overcomable. Again, not by me, but by God. His grace working through me. That at least means that. So that's encouraging. On the other hand, it means it's overcomable, which means if you yielded to it, that was you. You were accountable for that. Again, you cannot say, the devil made me do it. You cannot say, I need someone to rebuke the demon of slothfulness away from me, okay? You you can't say, that was you. Satan can tempt you. Satan can allure you. He can put that lure out there, okay? He can make it seem appetizing. He can dress it up. He can do all the things that make it flashy. But at the end of the day, you're the one who did that. The other side of this, again, is that it is overcomable by God's grace. The third one is this God will help you endure the temptation. This is actually interesting because we're, in a second here, he's going to say, escape it. But he also says he he helps you endure it. What does that mean? It means that for reasons unknown to us, sometimes God does not give us an instantaneous exit door. And sometimes he says, okay, I'm going to permit you to remain inside of the furnace for a season. But while you are in the furnace, I will give you what is the equipment that is required to be able to endure so that you will not sin while you are inside of the furnace. We don't have to yield to sin in the furnace. Endurance. He gives to us endurance. Okay? The ability to keep going, the ability to keep running, the ability to keep resisting. He gives that to us. He also gives to us, though, escape. He will will help you escape the temptation. What this means is that God will not permit you to be in the furnace forever, okay? He will bring you to the conclusion of that. There will be a conclusion to that temptation. He will provide a way out. And then finally, God is faithful. Again, this is out of order, but I want to go back to this one to kind of wrap up this whole verse here. What does this mean? What does it mean to say in a verse on temptation that God is faithful? This means that your hope of endurance, your hope of victory, your hope of sanctification hangs entirely upon the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. You on the other hand. (laughs) God is faithful. God is stronger than you. Success and victory over temptation will only be achieved through a work of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5 not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Anyone want to claim they're sufficient in themselves? Anyone? We're not. Are there any other verses in the Bible that connect these two ideas together? Yes, there are. What are the two ideas in this verse? God is what? Faithful. Okay, the faithfulness of God. And what is the other theme? My my being sustained. Right? So this, this verse glues them together. And it says this hangs on this the faithfulness of god produces my being sustained Th- this cannot happen without this okay this verse puts them together and saying you have to have this to, to have this okay are there any other verses in the bible that we could say take the faithfulness of god and connect it to to my being sustained yes okay i'm going to give you two of those 1st corinthians 1 which we already saw at the start of this study, verses 8 through 9. And we could have gone back a little bit, but who will sustain you? God will sustain you. Okay? He will sustain you. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? God's faithful. <laughs> you see how my being sustained and the faithfulness of God are connected together. Okay? Second Thessalonians 3, in verse 3, also links these two together. But the Lord is what? Faithful, he will do what? Because of his faithfulness, he will what? Establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will sustain you. So, who sustains us? Who sanctifies us? God. And if you want to know more about this, we happen to be doing a study at 9 a.m. that happens to be on this exact same topic, and we happen to talk at length about this this morning. The relationship that we see here between God, sustaining, and and my working, and all those kinds of things. And uh, if you have not joined us, there's a whole stack of books in the back there. Grab one on the way out and read chapter 2 for next week. Now, while we should understand this to be an encouragement to us, as I think it ought to be, there may be some who are perceiving this as being discouraging. You think that this takes away from your role to play in sanctification. Perhaps you might say this, wow, I mean, if this is true, well, then that means I'm totally dependent on God for this. And I would say, yeah, you are. You are totally dependent on God. You're not partially dependent on God. You're totally dependent on God. You are so dependent upon the Lord that Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, count on your fingers how many things are nothing. That's this many. This many things you can do apart from God. That's zero. Okay? Nothing. You get that? We can't do anything apart from the Lord. If we take all these things together, there is some encouragement to be at here. Why? Because this verse leans more towards a promise and less of a strategy. What's encouraging about that? There are five propositions in verse 13. Or, as we saw at the 9 a.m. service, five indicatives. Not imperatives, but indicatives. Each of these indicatives or each of these propositions tells us something about the nature of who... First Corinthians 10:13 is all about God. Do, do you see that? God is faithful. God won't let this happen. God'll do this. This is a verse that's all about God. It has implications for us, but it's all about God. Why is this an encouragement? Because it is a promise. It's a promise to us, to believers, to those who place their faith and trust in Christ. It is a promise that God will keep his own, he will sanctify his own, he will sustain his own. Say, man, where is the evidence to that? Okay, prove it. Okay, I will. Have you ever overcome temptation in the past, ever? Ever? I know you've yielded to it, but have you ever overcome temptation in the past? God did that. There's your proof. And he'll do it again to those who are his own. That's what the promise is, is that he will sustain his own. It doesn't mean that we're perfect now. It means that we're growing in our sanctification. But it does mean that he will grow us to become more and more and more and more like Christ. I hope that it is your testimony that, that you are a believer in Christ. I hope that you are one who has repented and believed on Christ. And if you are someone who has genuinely repented on Christ, you, we go through some rough spots, okay? But you should be able to look back at your life. 30, 20 10, five years ago, and say, it's not as fast as I wanted to, but God's changing me. God will continue to do that work for those who are His own. That promise, by the way, is for God's children, not for those who are unbelievers, which is a call for us to repent and believe on the gospel if we have not done so. So, where does the text leave us today? Well, the thrust of this passage is that there is a warning and there is a promise. And we would do well to heed both, the warning in the text and the promise in the text. The warning is this, don't presume that you know better than Israel. You can fall in all the same ways, and so look to their lives as an example. And what's the promise? God's faithfulness guarantees the ultimate victory of his children. God's faithfulness guarantees that, not you, God's faithfulness. So what's the application? Sitting your lazy boy? No. Here's the applications. Number one, fight temptation by looking to the example of the Israelites and resisting sin. Resist evil desires, idolatry, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, grumbling, and pride. Number two, fight temptation by rehearsing and trusting in the promises of God, which is exactly what this text gives to us. And number three, fight temptation by requesting grace from the Lord. Lord, you do this, not me. Please help me to do this because I need your grace. There were two brothers. One was a drunk and one was not a drunk. Someone one time went up to the drunk brother and asked him, Why are you a drunk? And he answered and said this because my father was a drunk. And someone went up to the brother who was not a drunk and said, why are you not a drunk? And his response, because my father was a drunk. We can take the example that is set before us and learn in one of two ways. This example is set before us with Israel. Look to them as an example. Why do we sin in the same ways? Because the examples of our forefathers and so on and so forth gave to us as example, Or we can learn from those examples, not by our own grace, but by Christ's grace, and resist that temptation to the glory of God. And so, let us respond to this passage today through worship, through adoration, through praise, through acknowledgement that the Lord is good, and resist temptation to the glory of God. Thank you, God, for your grace to us through the gospel. We thank you for your faithfulness and ask that you might help us to go from here and honor you in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name, amen.